you would please take out your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 1 as we continue in our series entitled, Fix Our Eyes on Jesus. What do you think when you hear the word authority? I'll be honest with you and tell you I'm not predisposed to like it very much. As this week has progressed, I've given a lot of thought about why. And to be honest, I haven't gotten very far. To be fair, I got a lot of spankings as a kid. That didn't help. I also saw the principal's office more than a fair number of times. But I I tend to think that my challenge has more to do with how I'm wired, with how I process. For example, it could be the result that I have a heavy conscience. Now don't get me wrong, that is a good gift. But when I was growing up, my dad would always ask me when I bring my report card home, if I tried as hard as I could. And even if I was getting all A's, I would always feel guilty because I always knew I could have tried harder could also be a result of the fact that I'm keenly aware of my weaknesses, and I have plenty of them. And the more I measure my weaknesses, particularly in light of other strengths, and I don't know why we do that, but we do, the more I often feel like I don't measure up. So when it comes to times or seasons to deal with authority, like being called into your boss's office, or having someone call and assert they need to meet with you soon, I tend to start to feel kind of skittish. I tend to start I tend to start wondering what did I do? So how do you react? Think about that for just a moment. Your boss calls and asks you to come to his office for just a moment. What does that do to you? Are you like me, feeling like you must be guilty of something? Or are you more apt to feel defensive? Or perhaps even compliant, or even rebellious. There's so many different ways we might react, but it is a question worth leaning into and perhaps even digging into because it does impact how we view God and how we view sin and how we think God thinks about us. Because how we view authority through those lenses is how we interpret that. We can think about God as a principle. We could think about God as a parent. We could think about God as a judge. And this morning, as we lean into Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45, we're not just going to consider authority, but we're going to consider an unusual authority. In fact, we're going to consider the astonishing authority of Jesus, that we might fix our eyes on him, that we might see him as he is. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus this morning? Would you, by your great grace, aid us in putting away all distractions? Would you empty our minds of all the things that are going on around us? Would you aid us by giving us your understanding that we might know what is true and what is false. That we might give you the time and the space to convict us of sin, to show us our unrighteousness, and to build us up according to your word. Father, would you use your word this morning to form and shape your people 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we head into Mark chapter 1 this morning, the text will take us into Capernaum. If you don't know the geography of Israel, it is a little helpful to know. The city of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem, sits here. I've got to work my geography backwards. If you were to consider the city of Jerusalem, you should know that just east of it is the Dead Sea. I'm orienting it to you. Uh, if you follow the Dead Sea north, you find the Jordan River going up to the Sea of Galilee. It's about 55 miles from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, you find the city of Capernaum. This is the main area we'll find Jesus working, going back and forth between Jerusalem along the Jordan River up to the Sea of Galilee along the Sea of Galilee. That's where we'll find him doing most of his ministry. And in many ways, Capernaum, this little town, becomes the base of his ministry. We'll see that a lot as we move through the book of Mark. And as we've moved along so far, we've seen Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, and now he's come alongside the Sea of Galilee. We saw that last week as he called Simon, whom Jesus will rename Peter, and his brother Andrew to follow him. We've seen so far that Jesus has identified himself as being God, and he's identified with us as being man, this fully God, fully man connection. And last week, Pastor David showed us this picture that he was initiating the kingdom of God. And we need all of that to set us up for Mark 1, starting verse 21. This is what it says. And they, this is Jesus and the disciples now, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. It was the Sabbath. It was a Saturday. And it was customary for the Jewish people to come together. And of course, in this case, we're talking about Jesus and Simon and Andrew. That's who we know to be the disciples at this point. They're gathering together to go to the synagogue. It's much like what you did this morning when you came to church. They're gathering together to go to gather. Except this time when they gather, it's a little bit different. Because the text will later tell us that Jairus, the synagogue leader, is not speaking that morning. They have a different rabbi standing up. And this morning, it's going to be Jesus. Now, you're not led to believe this has happened much. You're not led to believe it's happened before at all. This is the first place we see it since he was 12 standing up in the synagogue. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus stands up, goes forward, and begins to teach. And they were all astonished. This word also can be translated as amazed. It causes a a sense of awe or of wonder. It's an extraordinary word that testifies to what Jesus, how Jesus comes across in his teaching. And let's pause for just a moment and think about that. I, I tend to think that I'm a pretty fair preacher. I preach like 45 times a year. 
And if you're used to me preaching, much like the Capernaums would have been used to Jairus, you've gotten used to me. And I get that. It is what it is. Like the Capernaums would have been used to Jairus. So when Jesus stands up, it's not just that he's different. It's that he's amazing. And it's not just that he was a good communicator. It's not just that he was able to connect with people or or take better eye contact. It's not that he told better stories. Or that he was able to relate to them in some way that they were all longing for. I mean, he was astonishing. He was amazing. These are impressive words. He wasn't just better. One of the reasons the text tells us is because he was not like the scribes. That's what Mark writes. Which it might be helpful for you to know that the rabbinic way of teaching, the way a scribe would teach, would be to read a text and then to stand before you and weigh out what other teachers had said in the past. They would tell you this, some of this. They would tell you some of that. They would give your opinion of this and some of that. It'd be like me reading a passage and telling you, Spurgeon says this. Calvin thinks this. Edwards thinks this. And if you take this all together, and what Mark is telling you is, if that's the way that a rabbi would teach, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't look at the authority of other men. Jesus wasn't looking at other rabbis. For in fact, Jesus didn't need the authority of other people. Jesus told them what it meant. He walked into the text and he used himself as the authority to declare what this means. And it was extraordinary. Now Mark doesn't lean into his teaching the way some of the other gospels do. Mark tends to tell us stories so that we see Jesus in action. We see the impact of it. We see that here, verse 23. And... Immediately. Quick pause. This is the fifth time Mark uses the word immediately in his gospel. He'll use it 42 more times. We'll see it again in verse 29. If you're a a youngin and you happen to be with us, you want something to track along, you want something to listen for, listen for the word immediately as we work through this. You can keep track and make sure we're all on the same count. That's five. Look for six. It's coming. And if you get bored with me, you can look for six too. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now Jesus is teaching and he's teaching amazingly. And he's teaching with great authority, and one of the responses to his teaching, one of the responses from the crowd is that a man who's possessed with a group of demons. Now, we don't tend to think a lot about demon possession, and we'll talk about it as this series continues. I'm not going to lean into it much this morning for time's sake, but we'll get there. But this man is possessed by demons, and these demons immediately recognize Jesus. Now consider their recognition. 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? They know his person, but they also know his identity. Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They know who he is. They recognize his authority. And Jesus uses it. Verse 25. Jesus rebukes him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus had the ability to open the Old Testament and teach with authority. And in fact, if you read through the book of Acts, you come to chapter 13, verse 12, you'll find people testifying after Jesus is gone that his teachings, his words were still amazing. There's something about Jesus and this authority he carries that when he opens and teaches with authority, that he could command Demons, he could command evil spirits. And not just with authority, but authority that caused everyone to be amazed. There's something about who Jesus was and is that we don't have a category for. Jesus speaks to demons and they obey him. Let's keep looking, verse 29. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And we have five. Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. What Mark starts to lean into is this authority thing isn't just a synagogue thing. That Jesus goes to Peter and Andrew's house, and James and John have joined in, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. First thought you might get there is that Peter has a mother-in-law. You've not thought through that. You get a mother-in-law when you get married. Peter was married. We know almost nothing about his wife. She's never mentioned anywhere. We don't know if she's passed. We don't know what her story is. We do know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law. And we know he was at least close to his mother-in-law. She's in his house. And she has a fever. Now you need to be able to interpret a little bit that this is not like a 99.2 kind of fever. This isn't like I have a mild headache kind of thing. 
The same word is used in the Talmud to describe a burning fever. It's thought to be a disease. In fact, it's thought to be a deadly disease at that time. So the disciples tell Jesus about her, and Jesus goes to her and takes her by the hand. And you got to pause again for a second, because this is a woman thought to have a deadly disease, and he touches her. We often miss the little touches of the Scripture that Jesus is willing to step into. He takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. He doesn't even say a thing. He lifts her up, and immediately... She is better. And not just like better feeling better, but like better attitude, better everything. The text goes on to say, she began to serve them. She begins to show them hospitality. Picture that for a moment. In bed with a fever near death and moments later offering you iced tea. I mean, that's, that's healing. That's an entire picture of healing, of restoration, of redemption. But what we start to see is this picture of Jesus who had authority to teach and had authority to command demons, also has the authority over human sickness. One commentator speaks of Jesus having the authority in the spiritual realm by casting out demons, and having authority in the physical realm by healing disease. But that's not it. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now consider that for a moment. Leprosy was far more than a debilitating disease. Leprosy was social bankruptcy. It was to live life as an unwanted outcast. It's to walk down the street and have people run. There's nothing about that that would have been enjoyable. There's nothing about that that would have even been comforting. People fleeing from you. And here the leper, clearly having heard about Jesus, comes to him and asks, If you will, you can make me clean. In the Greek, it's a believing question. Like asking, I know you can do this. And if you want to, you can. Now watch Jesus' response. Because again, when we start to think about authority, this is a picture of Jesus' authority, and his authority really seems like he's for us. Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately... The leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Text says, moved with pity. 
You should know I actually really love the ESV translation. It's one of the reasons why we use it. I think it's an extraordinary translation that holds into account word accuracy and, and what this text is trying to say. This is one of these places I don't really like what the ESV says. Other Reading other versions is really helpful. The New American Standard says Jesus is moved with compassion. I like that. My heart, I'm an NIV 84 guy. You want to be nerdy about it. The NIV 84 says Jesus is filled with compassion. And what you start to see when you study that word is that Jesus doesn't feel bad for him. Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. One of my favorite gospel stories is in John 5 when Jesus heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus comes along the scene and it says that Jesus has known that he'd been there for a long time. The text leans into this idea that Jesus knew his condition. And it's not just a physical condition, it's a spiritual, it's, it's an emotional, it's a everything about you kind of thing. Jesus knew the condition of this leper. And he loved him. And his heart was compassion. So Jesus touches him. I don't think we have any idea how healing touch would feel to someone with leprosy. I don't think we have a clue. The story is far more about Jesus' authority over human condition and rather speaks to Jesus' authority and understanding of the human soul and condition. It testifies to Jesus, not just restoring his health, but restoring his dignity, his well-being. That's why Jesus continues on to socially restore him by sending him to the priest so that he might present himself as being clean. Now, the healing of a leper is not a common thing you find too In the Old Testament, this would have been extraordinary to the priest that this leper comes across. But it's not his health that was healed. It was his whole life. He was completely restored. Beloved, when we consider these four stories in Mark chapter 1, we see these pictures of Jesus' authority. We see his authority on display. And we see it in several different ways. We see his ability to walk through and teach the Scriptures, not pointing to others, but pointing to himself. Knowing exactly what it meant. There's something about how Jesus talks about the scriptures that's amazing. And can I speak to us just a little bit? Some of us need to get re-amazed by his word. If you need to find a, a different translation to read in, I totally get that. I change every couple of years in my personal reading because sometimes you can get to the story and you say, oh, I know it's going to happen. You start skipping along. 
Don't try to be amazed by Jesus every time. Because who he was was astonishing to those who heard him. Who he was was amazing to the people who heard his teaching. It was so countercultural. It was so redemptive. It was so restoring. Sometimes we walk around like, how am I going to ever get healed? Beloved, he's given you his word that we might know him. We might know his heart. We might know his character. We might understand the compassion he has for us. Now, I radically and totally understand the tension in these stories, right? Because we can listen to them and go, yeah, but Jesus, I'm suffering now. If you can, heal me. You can. Heal me. Now. Do it. Right this minute. And beloved, with all of our hearts, we need to believe he can. But we also need to hold intention the fact that he often doesn't. And it's not because he doesn't love us, and it's not because he doesn't have compassion for us. Sometimes, very well, we'll walk through this a lot, because Mark is going to paint Jesus as a sufferer over and over and over again. Sometimes we need to lean into the fact that our suffering is a testimony. And that's not an easy thing to say to people who are suffering. But it's a testimony to actually our belief. If Jesus is our rock, if Jesus is our foundation, and we're standing on it, we can endure all kinds of things. And don't think that's not a struggle for me. Friday morning, I'm in my office thinking I've got to get a root canal. Praying, Jesus, you could heal my tooth right now if you wanted to. Like, take this away. It's real. And that's a silly and it's a trite example, but I've lost a brother, a nephew, and a mom over the years. Don't think I haven't begged God to to relieve pain in all of those situations. We'll resolve that here in a minute. But we need to understand that Jesus has given us his word. And we're to trust it. It has authority over our lives and authority in the best possible conceivable way you can imagine because it's authority that's for you. It's for your good. It's compassionate towards you. It's a picture of Jesus we see. We see Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. We see Jesus' authority over demons. We see his authority over the physical world and healing Peter's mother-in-law. We see his authority extended to heal and restore a leper as if to say that he not only sees but hears and understands our condition and wants to restore us completely. What you start to see is the astonishing authority of Jesus on display in this text if you lean into it. And we often call this authority sovereignty. Meaning that Jesus rules over 
absolutely everything. And he does. Consider what Jesus himself says in Matthew 28 as a part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, this is post-death, post he's resurrected, talking to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We tend to cruise through that statement. That's a statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Beloved, that means he's got it all. There is nothing in question when Jesus is in control. Paul describes this for us in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or elections or pandemics. We could keep adding words. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Consider his authority. Created everything. By his authority. He's before. He's preeminent to all things. There is nothing over him. There's nothing equal to him. It's Jesus. And it's a long, 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 long list till you come up with something else. It's Jesus. And by his authority, he holds all things together. You know why the stars stay in place? Because Jesus puts them there. You know why the ocean stays where it sits? Because Jesus holds it there. You know why you have air to breathe? Because Jesus is holding molecules together that you're breathing. Which is to say his authority holds no limits. I want to pair that with what Paul writes in Romans 8 to complete our picture which we've seen in the Gospels. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What it does for us is it confirms for us and clarifies for us that not only does Jesus have all authority, but He uses authority for good. For our good. Beloved, we will watch this over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus reacting to people with a compassion we don't see coming. We have this tension in our lives. We sin. And we want to think of God as a principal or a parent, as a judge. We want to think about God coming down so 
harshly on us. And beloved, when you read the Gospels, you see a very different picture of Jesus. You see a compassionate, compelling authority. Now, beloved, I'm not telling you it's permissive towards sin. We often talk about the tension between living in sin and struggling with sin. Beloved, if you're struggling with sin, Jesus is compassionate. He's understanding. He's becking you out of it. He's calling you to something better. He wants you to understand His love, His true love. He wants you to know the depths of His heart. Because truly, if we truly knew the depths of His love and His understanding, His heart for us, we would choose something better. We would choose Him every single time. So beloved, this morning when we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, we need to see this picture that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We need to see this picture that that He initiates the kingdom of God. He welcomes us into His kingdom. But we also need to end the picture that He is the sovereign Lord. And we need to recognize when we call Him Lord, we're acknowledging His sovereignty. We're giving Him rule over us. So as we gather this morning, no matter what our worry or our challenge, or our difficulty, we should be able to lean in on the fact that Jesus Christ is in control. And that Jesus is one we can trust. And Jesus will use it for our good. Even when we don't understand. Even when things seem uncertain, even when things seem out of control, even when it feels like you're in a boat in the middle of the ocean and it's rocking and rolling and the thunder's cracking and the lightning's flashing. I think I just got those backwards. And it seems wild. Be still. Jesus is in control. As we fix our eyes on Him, we need to understand He's in charge. He has a purpose. His purpose is good. His purpose will bring Him glory. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Sovereign One, the One with all authority, a loving, kind, and compassionate authority. We pray for us. Oh, gracious Father, we gather here as your people, tired and weary from the world. We ask, Father, that you would refresh us in the person of your Son. As we walk and live and move and have our being, we can often be so tempted to build little trite little false pictures of who your son Jesus was. Pray that as we walk through this gospel, you would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is. 
as a compassionate one. He's a man possessed by demons and sees them fleeing because he has the authority to do it. Sees a sick woman and heals her so completely that she's serving nearly immediately. Has compassion on a leper and completely socially restores him, not to mention his health. Jesus, would you show us such a compelling picture of yourself that we might fall more in love with you, that we might so fix our eyes on you that the things of this earth would become dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. We ask that in your name. Amen.